I realize that for the talk tonight, I'm quite excited. And um, I realize I, I must almost cry. And I think it has to do with the talk I'd like to give tonight. Uh, it's a talk about the Venerable Chan Master Sheng Yen, called A Life Dedicated to the Dharma. And uh, if we would be in the Tibetan tradition, I think we would say it is a very auspicious moment. That's what they say if uh, someone is kind of crying or being very touched when, when one speaks or, or uh, thinks about uh, one's teacher or one of, one, uh, one of the teachers that one has. So I think it's quite an auspicious moment, probably. Now you might ask uh, perhaps why a talk about Zen Master Sheng Yen that probably the majority of you has never heard the name of him. <coughs> Actually, who has ever heard the name Master Sheng Yen? Ah, quite a few. Okay. Is anybody who has uh, met Master Sheng Yen or was able to attend the retreat with him here or at some other place? Okay. So why a talk about him or a talk about his life? Six years ago, we had the honor to host him at our center here for a Chan retreat. And I had the opportunity to meet him before I also participated at the retreat. Later on, I read, as perhaps some of you have, also his autobiography, which is called Footprints in the Snow. And again, I was very touched reading about his life. And really, this talk is a kind of expression of gratitude and great appreciation that I was able to meet him personally and that his presence, his Dharma teachings and humanness was and still is a great blessing for our center. I have no doubt about that. Also, I find that hearing about human beings who devout themselves wholeheartedly to the Dharma, conveys trust, comfort, joy, and inspiration for practice. And such beings show us that it's actually possible to be freer, to be more compassionate, lighter, and more human, and that it doesn't only happen in ancient fairy tales. So quite a lot in this talk will be quotes by Master Sheng Yen himself about that he wrote in his own biography. His book begins as follows. I was born in 1930, the year of the horse, on the fourth day of the 12th lunar month the youngest of my parents' six children. 
My mother was 42 when she gave birth to me, and my father was 41. According to my mother, I was an extremely thin infant, not much bigger than a kitten. She said many people thought I looked like a rat. <laughs> that is why my parents named me Bao Kang, stay healthy. <laughs> and he continues, we had little and the work was hard. Yet, from my perspective, our life was happy. My parents were a perfect couple. I never saw them fight. They never even quarreled. This was mainly because my mother was a very smart, competent person. All my father had to do was work the fields and provide us with food and money. My mother dominated the family. She ran our lives. My father was grateful. He accepted her strength, and in return, my mother was loving towards him. Their mutual devotion deeply affected me. Whenever I interact with people, I try to harmonize with them in the way my father did to my mother. Early on, the small boy experienced the fragility of the world and its constant danger. He saw the destructive power of typhoons, saw how after such a natural disaster, corpses were drifting by in the water and asked himself with a childlike curiosity while the male bodies were floating with their faces down and female bodies with faces up. This experience made him be aware that each one of us can die at any time. But his reaction wasn't fear, rather he felt that life is good and we should cherish it. He writes, I have seen much death in my lifetime, war, famine, disease. I am at the end of my life now. One day soon I will die. The lesson of the flood is still with me, and I know that there is no use worrying about death. The important thing is to live fully until the moment when it comes. His early sense of spirituality also derived from his mother. Her practice was reciting prayers to Kuan Yin, a female Buddha of great compassion. There is actually a statue of Kuan Yin at the back here uh, in the, on the lawn. Also, later on, a core part of the practice of Master Sheng Yen involved prostrations to the Bodhisattva of great compassion. It was the foundation of everything that he did. He says, in Chan Buddhism, wisdom and compassion are inseparable. In Chan practice, you cultivate wisdom, which is the absence of self-centered, self-centeredness. You can only be free from self-centeredness, however, 
if you have compassion, an awareness of the suffering of all sentient beings. Compassion allows you to give selflessly. If you are selfish, you will not have much compassion or wisdom. Therefore, wisdom and compassion are inseparably linked. If there is only wisdom, your practice is incomplete. In 1943, the 13-year-old boy entered Langshan Wolf Mountain Monastery after a neighbor encouraged him to do so since the monastery needed new blood. And the daily routine in the monastery was as follows. He had to get up at 4 in the morning and ended the day at 10 at night. He was looking after the vegetables in the garden, taking good care of the visitors so that they would donate more money. And he had to make sure that beggars didn't get their hungry hands into the donation box. He was told that he had many karmic obstructions and that and they were the reasons that he was having so much trouble memorizing the sutras, the texts, discourses of the Buddha. And his commentary on this is, I thought I was, it was just because I had a bit bad memory. <laughs> to overcome those hindrances, he began with the practice of prostrations to Guan Yin, mornings and evenings, 500 each. And he experienced this as quite difficult among all the other course that he had to do as a 13-year-old boy. But one morning he felt a force flowing down through his body and the practice became effortless. He felt cool and refreshed and his mind became clear and bright, as if a block that I wasn't aware of had been removed and the cap had been taken from my head. After that, his memory was better and he could learn faster. It was during that time that he got TB and suffered from two malaria attacks. Apart from his general weak physical condition, these shouldn't remain the only severe health problems for him. At the age of 15, he went to Shanghai into a branch monastery of Wolf Mountain. It was the end of the Second World War. For the young man, the city was an enormous adventure, having been brought up uh, in the countryside till then. And with astonishment, he watched the crowd of people waiting to cross the road. They looked like herds of ducks, all staring at the red light and waiting for it to turn green, then moving like water in a stream, he writes. His new home, the monastery Dasheng, was quite different from his previous one. 
the monks, including himself, had to run around like mad to perform funeral rites, sometimes three times a day at different locations. As a junior monk, he also had to perform both the morning and the evening service. He had to learn himself how to play the instruments so that people listening outside the temple thought that many monks, not just one, were performing, performing the service. For further income, the monastery rented out the facilities to lay people. They then also cooked meat and drank alcohol, which was against the Chan monastery's rule. Some of the monks were even heroin consumers or and went to see prostitutes. It should remain some of the most chaotic time of Sheng Yen's life with no schedule whatsoever. Two years later, in 1947, he moved into yet another monastery which allowed him to study Buddhism, mass and classical Chinese. Also, uh, physical exercises such as Tai Chi and Shaolin boxing were emphasized there. There was also meditation, but the only instruction he got was something like, just sit. When the legs stop to hurt, that's fine. <laughs> In 1949, the communists captured Shanghai, and through many causes and conditions, the young man decided to enter the anti-communist army in Taiwan. This was the beginning of yet another very hard time with long periods of malnutrition, but he tried to find ways to maintain his monk's practice even in the army, which, of course, was very difficult. Whenever he was doing simple things like running or marching or standing guard, he would recite the name of Bodhisattva Guan Yin. And with honesty, he writes about this time. I made it a point never to lose my temper. This was not just because I had renounced violence. When I was in elementary school, I was in fights all the time, and I lost everyone. <laughs> when people poked fun at me in the army, I tried to tolerate them. I knew that I should not lose my temper, but I also dared not. He tried to maintain contact with one of his masters during that military time, and one of them once wrote him back, Being a sentient being living in this world is like living in a house on fire. But when Buddha lives in this world, it is a Buddha land for delivering sentient beings. 
Treat the people in the army as learned friends and maintain your practice. That's why Buddha remained in this world even after his liberation to help sentient beings. This letter was very useful and I still have it, he writes. Then he met Master Ling Wan Hong Miao, or something similar, and his life changed. When I first met him, he says, I asked him many questions. I started with one question, but suddenly there were a hundred, each more perplexing than the last. They poured out of my heart like a waterfall, with all doubts, worries, and confusions. So, the young man was hoping this monk would give him the answers. And finally, Ling Yuan sighed, lifted his hand, and banged his fist on the table. Put it down. And Cheng Ying writes about this. First, I was shocked, but I felt a great weight lifted from me. In a flash, the cloud and fog dissipated. In its place was a profound sense of well-being. My whole body felt cool and extremely relaxed. There was nothing where my doubts and despair had been, and no problem anywhere in the world. Everything had gone. After that, I still responded to temptation with feelings of desire, hatred, fear, worry, or vanity. But I was able to let go of these mental reactions immediately. Even today, I feel free all the time. There is nothing that binds me, not fame, not money, not power, not women. Although I have myriad responsibilities, I do not feel bound by them. In 1960, 30, 30 years old, it was possible for him after 10 years to leave the army with the help of a high army person and due to his bad health. In Master Dongshu's monastery, he became a monk again, but had once more to undergo a severe treatment. Not long after he moved into the monastery and moved into uh, his room, Dong Chu, his master, told him to move to a smaller room, and this going back and forth went on for many time, many more times, actually, until Sheng Yen had accepted it without hesitation, protest, or resentment. Another time, Master Dong Chu commissioned him to fix the ceramic tiles in the kitchen. He had to go look for the exact same tiles without having even money to pay the bus ride. Afterwards, he said he had to read the suttas and not long after scolded him of reading too slow. He should better work on the brick wall, which soon later he had to pull down again. His motto was, 
A monk must be able to bear pressure. But Sheng Yen believed that he had learned a lot about himself during that training. He viewed life from a less self-centered perspective, as he remembers. After two years with Master Dong Chu, Sheng Yen decided to go into a solitary retreat in the mountains. He told his master he would practice hard so as to not to fail the Dharma. The important thing is not to fail yourself, he said. He wanted me to live a true monastic life, uphold the precepts, cultivate samadhi, give rise to wisdom, maintain a charitable mind, and endure difficulties. He did not want me to make empty vows. In Chinese tradition, there is a saying, when the heels do not touch the ground while traveling the world in the four directions, this is dangerous. In his retreat, his self-retreat, Sheng Yen got up very early again in the morning, about 10 minutes in front of the Buddha, meditated for one hour and read the suttas for another hour. Then he did two and a half hours of prostrations to Guanyin. After lunch, he had a short break, which followed by another session of two and a half hours of prostrations, one hour recitation, then dinner and meditation till 10 o'clock at night. Repentance prostrations were a major part of his practice. Although he hadn't done bad things in the 10 years in the army, he had to eat meat at times, which uh, he shouldn't do as a Buddhist monk. Or, as he says, he had dreamed as a soldier, not as a monk. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> In retreat, he read a lot because he wanted to have a profound knowledge his reading list is very impressive. Within one and a half years, he read the Nikayas, or the suttas of early Buddhism, then the Agamas, the later Mahayana suttas, and the Vinayas. Then he immersed himself in Chan literature at all different schools, as well as in history of Buddhism and biographies. I think it's something like a thousand or even more books that he read and studied. Of course, meditation practice was also a big part of his six years of solitary retreat. But he said that what happens in meditation should not be discussed in public. He wrote about practice in general. The true goals of the practice should be decreasing attachment and vexation 
and seeing the world positively, not focusing on contradictions and conflicts. With meditation practice, mind and personality get stabilized and a unified mind can be experienced. But these experiences, even the most illuminating, mystical and profound, are not enlightenment. Meditation cannot get one to see one's true nature. Seeing one's nature is letting go of the mind, be it unified or not. There is no attachment whatsoever. During his retreat, he also wrote some books because he wanted to contribute something to the world. He wrote many essays and articles, scholarly and popular books, so that people could understand that even though there are many sects of Buddhism, they are just different perspectives of the same Buddha Dharma. Sometimes he criticized both people in general and particularly of how Buddhism had been corrupted in China. Master Nanting inspired him to change course. He wrote to him, It's no use scolding people. The only useful thing is to stand up to oneself. If you scold others now, you will receive retribution later. So what really changed for him on retreat was how he thought about people. He says, By the end of my retreat, I stopped criticizing others. I realized that it is not effective to ask other people to change. Changing, changing yourself is the only thing you can rely on. In his more than 100 books that he wrote during his life, his concern was to make its content available to everybody and to show that although there are various perspectives, the aim is the same in all the different Buddhist teachings. Master Sheng Yen also got criticized himself and he thought this was fair because he was also criticizing others. He, for example, got accused of not just following one particular school of Buddhism, also that he didn't like social gatherings because his practice and his relationship with the Buddha were more important to him than parties, he says. And in regard to his later role as a Dharma master, he writes, My retreat did not leave me heart-baked and definite, like a piece of pottery. I did not decide to identify myself as a Dharma master, I sought instead to do my best to emulate Shakyamuni Buddha. 
I knew that I wanted to continue to learn from him. What I would become and what I would do depended on the causes and conditions that would ripen in the future. Many people try to set goals for themselves, such as making a certain amount of money, writing a certain number of books, and so on. These kinds of goals are not reliable. In the future, your health and the environment you live in will affect what you can actually accomplish. He also had developed an increased sensitivity to what was around him. He, for example, knew when someone was talking about him, someone who was not in the same room or in the same house even, or someone was coming to see him. Or he says, sometimes I feel the presence of a local earth god or of spirits living under a big tree or in graveyard or shaded dark places. I don't worry about them. If I thought about them, I would cause myself unnecessary trouble. People might expect me to be a ghostbuster, checking out their homes to see if spirits are living there, and I have no interest in that role. In 1969, at the age of 39, he traveled to Japan to pursue, to pursue a doctoral degree in Buddhist literature. Because in his previous retreat, he had also learned Japanese. He enjoyed practicing there with many different sects, and was curious about everything, participated in several sessions at Zen monasteries. He also made a very strong experience with the Tibetan tradition. In the middle of a visualization practice, for example, his sense of self dissolved and he began to speak in a language he didn't really understand. And he was told that it was Sanskrit, which he hadn't really learned. After six years in Japan, he finished his doctorate, but he still didn't see himself as a master of Chan. I was just a monk. I became whatever I needed to be according to the causes and conditions in my life. He then got invited to Canada by a Chinese immigrant in Toronto who wanted him to build a temple. He was also offered a professorship at the University of Toronto, but the story with the temple was a disappointment because it was intended as a tourist attraction and the professorship was a failure since he didn't speak English. <laughs> he then accepted an invitation of the Temple of Great Enlightenment in the Bronx in New York because 
what he really wanted to do was to devote his life to teaching Chan Buddhism. But the people at the temple there knew that he had just finished a doctorate and worried that he might be full of pride and arrogance. They wanted to make sure that he had the chance to eat bitter. That uh, apparently was an expression uh, in the Chinese culture, to, which means basically he had to go through hard times and not just have an uh, easy time. But he didn't think that this was necessary. After all, he had been trained to eat bitter since he was a child. But they had him clean the monastery, clearing it from all the junk and having to welcome all the visitors basically as a doorman. That was his role there. It was only later that he became the abbot and although he didn't know English, became the first Chan master to teach Chan to Westerners on the East Coast. With regard to the language, he says, Chan emphasizes to get directly to the heart of things. Using words to do this is like scratching an itchy foot with your shoes on. <laughs> In 1976, his teacher Dong Chu visited him in New York and asked him to take over his monastery in Taiwan after his death. It would have been impossible for him to refuse his teacher's request, of course. So soon after his visit, Dong Chu passed away, and Sheng Yen had to pack up and go to Taiwan. And after establishing the monastery there, he returned to New York again, only to find out that there was no more space for him in the monastery there. Thereupon, he decided to become a wandering monk in New York. He had no money for rent, so he slept in front of churches or in parks, he could make little money from odd jobs, <coughs> sweeping up shops or tending a pretzel stand. He learned that he could store his things at the locker at Grand Central Station and wash clothes at the laundromat. His students pointed out the fast food restaurants for him that were open 24 hours, and they told him that he could spend his nights at these places, resting and drinking coffee. He was over 50 by then, with much enthusiasm to bring the Dharma to the West. The lessons Dong Chu had taught me made it a matter of indifference to me whether I slept in a big or a small room or in the doorway of a church. Buddhist practitioners are ready to endure many difficulties if they are in the service of transforming others. Shakyamuni Buddha taught that to be a great practitioner, a bodhisattva, you do not look toward your own happiness and security. You only wish for sentient beings to cease suffering. 
And how do we endure hardship? It is necessary to have a mind of equanimity. When you encounter success, you don't think that you created it. Don't get too excited or proud of yourself. Your success happened for a reason and came to pass because of many people and circumstances. If you work hard at something, but find that too many obstacles prevent you from accomplishing it, you may have to give up. In that case, you shouldn't get depressed. Conditions aren't right. Perhaps this will change, perhaps it won't. You are not a failure. Keeping a mind of equanimity, though, does not mean being inactive or passive. Master Xuyun said, Although places for the practice are like the reflection of the moon in the water, illusory and impermanent, we establish them wherever we go. This means that these jobs are illusory, but we still need to do them. Sentient beings are illusory, but we still need to help deliver them. We must try our best without being attached to success and failure. I felt very happy. He continues, My life is very different now. I have met with the world leaders and given a keynote address in the General Assembly Hall at the UN. My disciples include high-level officials in Taiwan. I was received as a VIP in motorcades in mainland China and Thailand. I am famous today, but tomorrow, when I can no longer do what I do, I will be forgotten. Fame, like wealth and power, is illusionary. If you can maintain a mind of equanimity, you are free no matter what the conditions. So in 1995, he founded his own retreat center called Dharma Drum Mountain, two hours away from New York. Later on in Taiwan, after about 16 years of planning work, developed the huge World Center for Buddhist Education. Because his vision was the idea of an all-embracing Dharma, peace and harmony of body, mind, family and society. His famousness bestowed him with envier also, of course. And in this regard, he referred to a Chinese saying which goes, when the tree is large, it catches wind. <laughs> he also said, once I became a Chan master, I had to cope with the burden of power, what it meant to have that level of authority. Maybe some 
thoughts from him about teaching in the West. He said, some students suffered from pride and ambition. Once a student asked me, are you the best teacher in the world? I'm not. Who is? Don't know. Since you are not confident that you are the best teacher, I will go look for him. Two years later, he came back. There seems to be no such thing as the best teacher in this world. Another student became upset that I would not help him find a place to go on solitary retreat for six years, as I had done. I told him that he was not ready to practice without the guidance of a teacher, so he left our community. Time and again, I did not live up to their ideals. They became critical and wanted me to change. I couldn't change myself as a teacher or change our organization to fit their ideals. These people left. It's good when they come. It's also good when they leave. There is nothing unhappy about it. Everything is impermanent in this world. After a number of financial and sex scandals in some of the Eastern-based religious groups in the U.S., he was especially careful about these two issues. And he writes, Westerners are very passionate. When I treat them nicely, they respond with emotion. In the West, shaking hands and hugging are very common. I judge whether it's appropriate to shake hands, and sometimes I refuse. I don't hug. I find it necessary to decline. As for money, I do not lend money to people, mainly because I don't have any personal money. <laughs> I also try to ward off conflicts over politics. My position is that it's better for religious organizations not to get involved in politics. My students struggled with my position at first, but they have come to accept it. One of the reasons our chant center has not had many problems is that I have excellent disciples. Guayun Fashi has been with me the longest, more than 18 years. He helps me conduct retreats and travels with me around the world. I would say we are like father and son, but fathers and sons get into fights, and we don't. There's also maybe just a few anecdotes that I would like to share at this point from his visit at our center here in 2004. Little by little, we became aware whom we had invited. <laughs> and the more we did become aware who we had invited, we were quite nervous. <laughs> what can we expect? 
And one day after the arrival of Master Sheng Yen here and his crew was my 50th birthday. And we all went for a sightseeing tour to Grindelwald, which is just a little village not far from here towards the mountains. We, meaning Master Sheng Yen himself, his retreat leader, who uh, was actually Guayun Fashi, I just mentioned before, another monk, his translator, two cameramen, who always travel with him to film, make films for the Taiwanese TV. And one of the cameramen was also his cook, and Fred, myself, and Philip from the house team. So we all went to Grindelwald for this uh, outing. And on our way back, I could buy a birthday cake offered by Master Sheng Yen. And later that day was presented with a happy birthday song in Chinese here in the dining hall. And to my embarrassment, I had chosen a cake with cherry brandy in it, alcohol. And of course, you know, it was one of the rules since they were ordained as monks not to uh, drink alcohol. So after a short moment of hesitation, they of course immediately uh, became aware of that, <laughs> Master Sheng Yen and his crew decided to join us eating the cake as not to diminish our shared joy. So the bodhisattva rules may be casually expressed not to be a nuisance to other people. Those rules were placed higher than the Vinaya rules in which alcohol is not allowed. Our retreat here, and I know a few of you uh, were also part of that retreat. Carol was part of that, uh, a few others here. So you know it was shaped by a very strict outer form, very strict outer form, <laughs> with, and that was very interesting, at the same time, a very gentle, open, relaxed inner atmosphere. And part of the strict outer form, for example, was all the seats were assigned. You couldn't just come in the beginning of the retreat and check out where you would like to sit, hide behind somewhere or your preferable seat here in front. So you just uh, had to go wherever you were seated. And if one didn't want or couldn't for whatever reason come to the sitting, meditation, one had to give notice to the retreat leader, which wasn't Master Sheng Yen. You really had to come and say, sorry, for that and that reason, I can't come to the sitting meditation. Master Sheng Yen was very interested and curious about how our center was organized. To our surprise, he was actually already quite informed beforehand. He knew, for example, how many people were working in the kitchen and how many 
and he had many questions about that and how we do it here because he was just about to establish and uh, organize his retreat center in, in the States. So his genuine sympathy and interest impressed and touched us deeply. There was another uh, incident that stays with me quite vividly. In my personal interview with him, I told him that the uh, clapping of the sound of the kyosaku, which is that small wooden board uh, that they would use, one could ask, you know, if you would feel quite sleepy, not much energy, you would bow and ask, and then they would come and, and help you to wake up the energy by hitting certain points uh, on your shoulders. So I told him that here, even just hearing that clap somehow brought up some unexpected emotional reactions, even though I found it quite helpful myself. In fact, it became impossible for me to relax my body and to concentrate my mind. So a, a subtle panic seemed to be going on at that time. And of course, as you can imagine, I was very eager to get his advice on this. And his response, communicated by his translator, took me by surprise. He said, Shifu, Shifu, that's how he was called and addressed, Shifu believes that he will stop using the stick if it affects you like this. So, of course, I was deeply moved. Actually, it felt as if I could see into the entire universe at that point. It was like there were no boundaries anywhere that I could find just for a short moment. And of course, I told him that I wouldn't want him to change that and that, you know, the whole entire course uh, would be changed around uh, my difficulty and that I would just continue with my practice and that's uh, how it was actually done. So till today, this episode remains one of the most impressive for me. You know, it felt like there is really just no, it's nobody there. <laughs> there's nobody there, you know, although there's very much somebody there. <laughs> and at the end of the retreat, his translator, who at the same time was his secretary, did let us know that Shifu offered his entire donation that he got from the course participants to the center. So truly his presence was a real blessing for this place, for me personally, and I'm sure for many other people who had the good fortune to meet him somewhere. To his way of teaching, he said, at the heart of my teaching is the idea that can be described as conditioned co-arising, Everything that arises and disappears has its reasons. We are aware of some of the reasons and unaware of others. 
If you understand this, you will not give up, nor will you insist on what can't be achieved, or be jealous of others, or upset with yourself. I teach my students not to worry about enlightenment, especially since it is impossible to fully understand the causes and conditions that lead to it. In his retreats, Master Sheng Yan combined also fast and slow walking. He would sometimes use Tai Chi exercises. He at uh, certain retreats, not all of them, not when he was teaching here, but sometimes he would uh, teach the practice of prostrations, which he found especially helpful for people that encounter difficulties calming the mind. And part of his teaching were also recitations and prayers. So I'd like to close again with Master Sheng Yen about himself. I think of myself as a citizen of the world, as a religious teacher and monk. I do not belong to a certain people or nation. I'm like a cloud, drifting from place to place. I have traveled all over the globe, and the earth feels very small to me. Each place is connected to the other. In recent years, I have begun to slow down. I still get up every day, meditate, and do the morning service in the Buddha Hall. After breakfast, I read the newspaper or my secretary summarizes the online news for me. I still teach classes, but no longer train disciples personally. I don't spend much time on administrative matters. All I have to do is sign important documents or give guidance on how to handle situations that arise. Much of my time is spent receiving visitors. Now that I'm old, I need time to rest in the afternoon. When I was younger, I worked 16-hour days without resting. There was no time to rest. I tried to keep myself open to new experiences and people so I can continue to learn and grow. Time has passed so quickly. I'm sure that my inner world now is different from my inner world 30 years ago. But I can't really explain how they are different. The only difference I feel between now and then is that I once had more energy and my body was stronger. Now that I'm old, more of what I'm thinking stays inside me. I'm more contained the things I want to express do not always need to manifest outwardly. They dissolve in my mind. Looking back, I can say that I've never planned for my life to turn out a certain way. My life has progressed through one set of causes and conditions leading to another. I believe I have been very fortunate in my life. There is one principle that has remained constant. 
I never allow myself to experience feelings of satisfaction or disappointment. When things are going well, I don't let myself feel content. When I encounter obstacles or failure, I don't despair. I find ways to keep going. When I encounter a dead end, I turn around and find another way to proceed. I keep moving. If I stop, there is no hope. I'm all now close to my death, but I still see a road ahead of me. I do not think I'm done. I'm not attached to what I have accomplished in the past. People have honored me, but I can't eat honors. My accomplishments are not mine. They are a result of causes and conditions which I did not avoid, but instead willingly took on because I wanted to alleviate suffering and help people. I have been asked whether there is anything in my life that I regret. I have experiences where I did embarrassing things. I still do plenty of embarrassing things. But there is, no, there is nothing I regret. When I make a mistake, I repent, accept responsibility and keep going. I believe that I have been able to help people through my life and I have been able to spread the Dharma. I still think of myself as a wandering monk in the snow. I go where I'm needed. It has been good to take up the story of my life. I hope it will be of some use. Now it is time to let go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.